Our scripture this morning will be from 1 Kings, chapter 19. We'll read the first 18 verses of 1 Kings 19. That's on page 375 of your Bible. The heading over this passage being, Elijah flees from Jezebel. So, 1 Kings 19 and verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, or under a broom tree as they're known today. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake, baked on hot stones, and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time, and touched him, and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, and ate, and drank. And went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth, and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains, and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they Seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall put to death. 
And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So far our reading in the scripture. Dear friends, it's essential to understand this passage to know what went before. And you'll know that just before this, Elijah had his uh, tremendous triumph and victory that he experienced on Mount Carmel. You'll remember that it was on that mount that the sacrifice to Baal and the sacrifice to the God of Israel uh, took place. And it was there that God sent down fire that consumed the altar of or the altar that Elijah had built and never touched the altar that the priests of Baal had built. And after that, you'll remember that Elijah and those with him put to death all 450 priests of Baal. They were all put to death. Now you can imagine that when Elijah came off that mountain, he must have been elated. He must have been full of zeal, full of joy as he came down off that mountain. Certain, perhaps, that, that uh, from this point, the, is, the land of Israel would begin to turn. I mean, who can, who can argue with flame falling down out of heaven and consuming an altar that was covered with water that was thoroughly soaked? Remember, they had poured pail after pail of water on this altar and thoroughly soaked it, and down came the fire of God and consumed that altar. Certainly, this would be the day when Israel would throw out the priests of Baal, when they would cast off the Canaanite religion that Jezebel had brought into the country, and when they would return to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, this will be the day, this will be like the July 4, as it were, of Israel's history, the birthday of Israel, when they return to the God who saved them and who brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. But you can imagine, dear friends, that after that victory, when Elijah gets the news that Jezebel then sends so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And after that tremendous victory that Elijah experienced on Mount Carmel, down he's dashed again when he realizes that Israel's not turning. There was no groundswell of movement, no, you might say, grassroots movement to throw out the priests of Baal, to throw off that religion, to destroy the altars to Baal and the temple to Baal. In fact, not much changed at all. And now Jezebel's coming after him to take his life. And so after the great victory comes tremendous despondency. And there's something already there, a lesson for us, isn't there, dear friends? How many times we experience that in our life. That when we have a special time in our life, when we feel especially close to God, or when God rescues us from some distress, whatever it may be, oftentimes isn't it the case that we seem to fall back, as it were, into a time of despondency, even a time of unbelief, even a time where we step out of the will of God. Well, that's certainly what happened to Elijah. And as we think about the sacrament this morning, I'd like to take you to these, these four points of Elijah's flight, God's question, God's provision, and Elijah's return. His flight, God's question, God's provision, and Elijah's return. Well, in the first place, we have Elijah's flight. Now, you know the times in which Israel lived, right? That Ahab, who was a, a weak, vacillating ruler, had married this Jezebel, who seemed to be a very strong woman, a very strong leader, and she had brought with her the religion 
of the Canaanites, the worship of the God of Baal. And we are told in 1 Kings 21, just a couple chapters forward, 1 Kings 21 and verse 25, where we're told that surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil. Listen to that language. He sold himself to do evil. Right, we even use that expression today, right? He's, he's, he's sold out to that person, or he's, he's a sellout, right? Well, even in the Hebrew language, Ahab sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. And it goes on to talk about all that he did. This was the t- these, these were the times then in which Elijah lived. And you can imagine that a man of Elijah, who was a, a, a violent man, uh, really, a, a, a courageous man, a passionate man, who wanted to have things happen uh, immediately and with great dr- dramatic, uh, you know, he, he wanted things to happen right now. And yet now Elijah, after this experience on Mount Carmel and after this threat from Jezebel, he runs for his life. And that's what we have in the text, right? That he fled for his life. In verse uh, 2, or verse 3, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life. Moses had a similar experience, didn't he? In Numbers 11, Moses, after uh, also the same situation, confronting the obstinacy of the people of Israel, said, if, Lord, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So uh, Elijah is not the only prophet who feels this intense feeling of frustration that Israel is so obstinate, they will not obey, they will not submit to God and his law. And so Elijah flies, and there's some interesting things here, because we notice in verse 3 that he, he flees for his life and he comes to Beersheba. Now what do we know about Beersheba? Well, Beersheba, in a map of Palestine, is the southernmost city. It's the southernmost tip of the land of Israel. You can't go any farther south. And not only does he come to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, but notice in verse 3, he left his servant there. So Elijah has a servant, a young man, who would have assisted him. And he says, now you stay here, because what does Elijah do? But he himself, verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness. That means that he not only goes as far south as you can go, but he goes farther south yet which means that he actually leaves the land of Israel. And he leaves behind his servant. Do you sense something, dear friends, of the despondency in this man's heart? That not only is he running from Jezebel, but really he's running from the call of God himself. He even leaves the land of Israel. It's as if he washes his hands of it and says, Lord, I'll have, I, I can't do this any longer. I can't face these people. I'm getting out of Israel. I'm leaving completely. I'm leaving the land of Israel. I'm going into the wilderness. There's no people there. Again, I I hope that this morning that you not just understand the text, but that you feel something of it. That you feel something of the despondency and the despair that is in Elijah as he flees from the call of God on his life. One more thing before I leave the first point, dear friends, and that is that in Elijah's ministry, it's noteworthy that oftentimes 
nearly every time Elijah goes somewhere, it's always because it says, and God told Elijah to do this, or God called Elijah to do that, or the Lord sent him, but not here, not here. This is just Elijah. He hears the threat of Jezebel, and he flees. God did not tell him to go there. Again, this also teaches us that Elijah was fleeing from the call of God. Elijah is another Jonah in this respect, and he flees from it. And then comes God's question. In the second place, God's question. And oh, the searching character of God's questions. God's questions are painful, dear friends. You know of what I speak this morning? How many of us have heard God's questions in our life? Because as Elijah comes into that wilderness, and as he lays down under that broom tree, and I put a picture of that, you can see the shade there that it would have provided. And can't you see Elijah laying down in that desolate place under that juniper, under that broom tree? There comes the question of God to him. Right? And the question that came to him, <clears throat> and, uh, well, Elijah, he prays, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. And later, when, he, when, he, when God strengthens him and he comes to the cave, then comes the question, right? In verse 9. Verse 9, Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And there comes that question. That's not just a question, is it? It's like a dagger to the conscience of Elijah. When last have we heard a question like that in our preaching here? Dear friends, do you remember? Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve in the garden? Adam, Eve, where are you? Again, God knew where they were. God didn't have to ask the question. But it's a trigger to the conscience of his people. What are you doing here, Elijah? How did you get here? Did I call you here? Is there a ministry for you to perform here? What are you doing here, Elijah? What a question, dear friends. What a question. Such a searching question. Elijah, weren't you in Jezreel last time we talked? Hadn't I just given you that massive victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel? What are you doing here? This isn't even the land of Israel. You're not even in the land of Israel anymore. Why so much fear of Jezebel? Where's all your courage? Is this Elijah, the strong prophet, the prophet whom God had anointed and called to this task and given so much courage, the fearless prophet of God, flying for his life? Elijah, don't you remember the ravens that fed you? You stood before Ahab. Remember, congregation, Elijah was the one who stood before Ahab, before the incident on Mount Carmel. And Ahab had said, are you the troubler of Israel? And Elijah had turned right around and said, you're the troubler of Israel. This is the courageous Elijah whom we're talking about, who God now finds in the wilderness. And he sends forth this very searching question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What a question, my friends. What a question. And we see Elijah's reply. We see Elijah's reply in, in, uh, in, in, in how he despairs. He talks about how his, he's, uh, he's labored hard, been zealous for the Lord of hosts, but Israel has forsaken God's covenant, torn down the altars of God, killed the prophets with the sword. And Elijah says, I'm the only one left, and now they're seeking to kill even me. Well, my friends, 
what is uh, such a, a, a wonderfully encouraging truth is our third point. That even in Elijah's despair, even in Elijah's walking away, walking out of the will of God, there comes God's provision. God's provision. Because as Elijah is lying there under the broom tree, God says, arise and eat. And he says it twice to him. And the second time, he adds with it, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Now, my friends, there you see the mercies of God, the undeserved mercies of God. Because Elijah was not where he needed to be. He was not where God had called him. Elijah had left. He had stepped out of the will of God. He had no call of God to be here in the wilderness. And yet still God comes to him in all his despair and in all his despondency. And he lifts him up. He encourages him. He strengthens him. This is God's provision. And part of God's provision, my friends, is God speaking to him. Actually, on the outline, I would take that under point four, wind, earthquake, and fire, and bump that up to the third point. That should be under the third point there. Because God also speaks to Elijah. And let's take a look then at what God says to Elijah. Because as Elijah is standing there in the cave, God speaks to him. He says, go, in verse 11, forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. That's Mount Horeb. So this is Mount Sinai, the same mountain that Israel had received the law of God. And the Lord passes by. And the first word, as it were, again, not a literal word, but an, a, 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 a symbol, a sign that comes, is this strong wind. So strong that it rends the mountains and breaks in pieces the rocks before the Lord. In other words, a wind of terrific force. But the Lord was not in the wind. And now, my friends, we have to think about how to understand this. Because it's, it is somewhat difficult to know what exactly was God trying to tell Elijah through these symbols, these signs. <clears throat> we have to believe, as we, as we try to understand this and interpret this, that whatever God was saying, it was meant to resolve Elijah's issue, right? His problem, Elijah's despondency, his despair, the fear for his life, his, his despair that his work was useless, that he was accomplishing nothing that he had had this tremendous victory on Mount Carmel, and then everything went back to normal again. Israel returned right back to worshiping Baal. Jezebel's trying to kill Elijah. So whatever God is saying in these phenomenon, the wind and the fire and the earthquake, it must be speaking to something that Elijah has, right? His issue, his problem. And God is going to answer that and resolve that. And so God is not in the wind. And the wind, again, the text makes very clear to us, was of... Uh, an unbelievable power, a miraculous power, really, because even, even a terrifically strong wind wouldn't tear rocks apart, right? But this wind is so ferociously strong that it even tears the rocks to pieces. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind comes an earthquake. The earth shakes. Certainly this must be God. This must be the voice of God to Elijah. But again, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then a fire but the Lord was not in the fire. So you have these three very dramatic, very violent things. The wind, the earthquake, and the fire. But in each of those things, the Lord was not there. The Lord did not speak to Elijah through those things. And then comes this gentle blowing. This still, small wind. This gentle breeze. 
that blows through the mountains. Now, the text doesn't say it, but we conclude from verse 13 that that was the voice of God to Elijah. Notice in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And there is in that, in that covering of his head, in that wrapping of his face, a sense of humility, a sense even of shame as he comes out in the temple to face the Lord. And so, my friends, when we think of God's provision to Elijah to arise and eat, but also now in these signs, God communicates to Elijah that God doesn't always work in the terrifying force of the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. But sometimes God works in a still, a small, a quiet, a gentle way. Now, that may have been difficult for Elijah to hear, Elijah was a man of violent passions. He was a man of of strength. He was a man of action. He was a man of right now. And no doubt that was what he was thinking as he he came down off Mount Carmel and saw the tremendous victory that he'd received there. Certainly Israel will repent now. And when it didn't happen, he flies in terror for his life from, from Jezebel. But God provides Elijah a vision of the work of God that God works sovereignly in his own way and in his own place. And sometimes it's a quiet, gentle, gradual working. And Elijah needed to know that. Elijah needed to persevere in the way of duty, not looking always for wind and earthquake and fire, but sometimes to recognize, to have the eyes to see God's more gentle and his more gradual work. Well, and then we have Elijah's return because God calls him again to anoint these three men, Jehu, Haziel, and Elisha, to their respective offices. And once again, Elijah returns to his work. He returns to all the uh, calling that God had given him. He was strengthened by God, arising and eating. He had seen the work of God before him, not always an earthquake, a fire, and a wind. But then one more thing that we can point out in Elijah's return, and that is the 7,000. Because Elijah, in all his violence, in all his activity, in all his hope for victory, had missed something. Elijah says, I'm the only one left to serve you, O Lord, and they're trying to take my life away. And God says, on the contrary, there are 7,000 yet. And 7,000, my friends, is not a literal number. It's thousand, which means great many, a great multitude, and seven, the number of completeness. And so what, what, what uh, God says to Elijah here is that there's a, a multitude of people yet in Israel who are still faithful to me. Elijah couldn't see it. He certainly didn't feel it. He felt he was the only one left. But God points out to him, yet I will leave a remnant in Israel, 7,000. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so Elijah is encouraged again. Again, he's encouraged by arising and eating. He receives this food that the angel brings him. He's encouraged to return to the path of duty by seeing a picture of how God works. And he's encouraged by knowing that there are still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That is the encouragement that God gives him, my friends. 
And what an encouragement also for us this morning when we think about our own call, our own work in the kingdom of God and what it is and what it means to us and how we go forward into it and how we face the discouragements, how we face the victories. God teaches us all these things. And my friends, as we consider the sacrament today, God comes to us in a very gentle, a very quiet, a very, a very, it seems so trifling almost, doesn't it? Just bread broken and wine poured out. But that's a gentle blowing, my friends, that we all should hear as the people of God. And know that by this God tells us, arise and eat. For the journey is too great for you. He strengthens us. He encourages us on a regular basis. Even when we come to these places where we're outside of the will of God. My friends, may God bless us as we think about these things. And as God encourages us also this morning to arise and to eat. At this point, I will continue the reading of the